Welcome to the Wittenberg Hour. Tis the spring of souls today, Christ has burst his prison, and from three days sleep in death as a sun has risen. All the winter of our sins, long and dark, is flying from his light to whom is given laud and praise undying. Lutheran Service Book, number 487, stanza two. Hello and welcome to the Wittenberg Hour, where we explore big questions and discuss that which endures by means of that which has endured that scholars may endure. My name is Jocelyn Benson, and I serve as head teacher of Wittenberg Academy. What is poetry? How can poetry aid our Easter celebration? What are some exemplary poems to ponder for Easter? Joining us today for this special Easter episode is Reverend Anthony Dodgers. Pastor Dodgers shepherds the flock at Emmanuel Lutheran in Charlotte, Iowa, is husband to Betsy, father to baby Dodgers, and has a special fondness for poetry. Pastor Dodgers, we recently pondered Holy Week poetry and defined poetry. In case our listeners missed that episode, which hopefully they didn't, but in case they did, uh, could you do a quick recap of the highlights from that discussion? Sure, I'd uh, love to do that. And I just think it's fantastic that we're talking about poetry, not only during Holy Week, but also for Easter, because uh, poetry as this very dense kind of language is just perfect for expressing praise. And on Easter, the day of days, the day of all days, uh, when we just want to, uh, you know, shout our praise in uh, for the victory of Christ's resurrection from the dead, uh, poetry can really help us do that. And just a, in a way that regular prose doesn't quite uh, match it. So what's the difference between poetry and you know regular prose? Uh, the main thing is that poetry is in some sort of metrical form. And, and maybe some people listened to me say that last week and they thought, well, I know of poems that aren't following a strict meter. And, uh, and that's okay. There, there's such things, such a thing as free verse, but that really only exists as poetry because of the wider context and foundation that metrical verse provided first, you know, and so then poets have played with that and have sort of, um, you know, not, not broken away from it, but responded to it in different ways. But I think still the primary definition of poetry is when you're expressing something in a meter. And then we also want to pay attention to how poetry uses imagery. It uses pictures. It paints with words. And uh, often those images are metaphors for something else. It's important to pay attention to the images that we see in all types of literature, novels, fairy tales, uh, any of those sorts of uh, fictional works. They're going to use images and patterns, but in poetry, that is uh, condensed. It's distilled down to just give us the image uh, and and to really focus our attention on that in a way that, uh, you know, a novel has so many other things going on, has plot and character development and all that kind of stuff. So uh, I guess that's uh, my basic 
summing up of our talk about poetry from last week. And I wanted to use an example from the Psalms again. We mentioned Psalm 22 for Christ's passion, but for Easter, in a many of our churches, at least at one of the Easter Sunday services, you might hear this antiphon. It comes from uh, Psalm 139. This would be in the, uh, the intro it for Easter Sunday morning. Psalm 139, verse 18. I awake and I am still with you. Now, the context of the psalm, the psalmist is speaking to God about how God knows him completely, that there's nowhere on earth that he can go. There's no thought that he's had that God doesn't already know. You know, he can't, if he goes to the depths of the sea, God is there. If he goes up to the heights, God is there. If I hide myself in darkness, uh, even the darkness is light to God. And so there's nowhere that he can go where God is not. Uh, and uh, and then this, this phrase comes in towards the end of the psalm, I awake and I am still with you. This was chosen long ago uh, by, uh, by the church to serve as the antiphon for the introit on Easter Sunday morning, and it might kind of seem strange. What does that psalm have to do with Easter? It seems like you know nothing in that psalm really uh, addresses Christ's resurrection from the dead. But I think it's genius because it's a great example of how poetry can work on multiple levels. Uh, there are layers of meaning. And again, that's true for all types of literature, but especially in poetry, poetry being that distilled form of literature, so that more than any, more than any novel, uh, poetry can work on uh, multiple layers of meaning. And the Psalms are really a fantastic example of this because uh, it has been long understood by by the church, and you can see this even in Scripture with how Christ quotes the Psalms in his ministry and in his passion. Uh, that has led the church to understand that the Psalms are prayed both by Christ and the Christian. And in fact, it is only because we are in Christ that we can pray his prayers, that the Psalms are all are, are ultimately Christ's prayers uh, that we are able to then take as our own because we are in Christ. And, uh, and so just this one little phrase, I awake and I am still with you. We can hear that coming from both the mouth of Christ and from uh, the mouth of the, of the Christian. Christ, if, if, if we understand Christ to be praying that, that statement to God his Father, he, he is saying, you know, I, I awake from death, I awake from my three days sleep in the tomb, and I am still with you, my God, right? Just as he said uh, to the father before he died, Father, into your hands I commend my spirit, which is also a quote from the Psalms. That's another psalm he's quoting. Uh, now, as he awakes from death and rises, he says, I am still with you, God. You are still with me because Christ was not forsaken in his death. Uh, Christ was forsaken on the cross, but his death was not the end of him. Uh, the New Testament makes it clear that the Father raised his son from the dead to vindicate him as uh, the righteous one. 
right? That he is raised for our justification, which means first, it first means that Christ is righteous. He is just, and so he does not deserve to die, and so God raises him from the dead. And then that gets applied then also to us who are in Christ. So then for the Christian, we also can say that, uh, I awake and I am still with you, because we know that death is not our end either, that we will awake from our sleep of death and still be with God. We are, we share in Christ's justification, and that means we share in his resurrection. These are Jesus' prayers, right? And we cannot pray them if we are not in Christ. And I, I think that's, but, and because of that, you know, because of that profound, the prof- profound nature of, of, of salvation, right? I mean, salvation is quite profound if, if you think about all of, all of that. Um, but that the complexity of the Psalms, while they are, you know, easy to read, except by faith, we cannot understand the complexity that they contain. Yeah, and it's a it's a joyful complexity. Right. It's not a um, just so no one hears complexity as in this is a confusing complexity. Right. Right. Uh, right. Yeah. Although sometimes it takes a little uh, meditating, a little mulling over it, and that's fine. That's good. It, it's a good exercise. Uh, but it's it's beautiful in its complexity. It's like a you know, it's like a a stained glass window with all these tiny little pieces put in just their right spot that uh, in and of themselves just seem you know there's kind of just it's such a complicated pattern. What is it until you step back and you see the great big beautiful picture uh, in the window? So last time, uh, during our episode on uh, poetry for Holy Week, uh, we pondered uh, one of the Psalms, and then uh, we we pondered hymns. Do you have uh, some hymns for us uh, for this episode uh, as we ponder poetry for Easter? Yeah, I picked out a couple, and uh, I also want to just say the one that you read at the beginning of the show is also a perfect example. That entire hymn gives wonderful poetic imagery, what what Bible scholars often call typology, uh, using these images from the scriptures to illustrate Christ and his saving work. So uh, yeah, Come You Faithful, Raise the Strain is, is a fantastic hymn written by one of the church's great poets and hymn writers, John of Damascus. Uh, couple that I picked out come from, uh, come from Lutherans, and so I just wanted to highlight uh, their contribution, since we often, we don't really have too many Lutheran poets outside of our hymn writers. They're, they're our poets, uh, and I think that's, that's great. It's kind of unique, uh, maybe, that makes the Lutheran Church a little bit unique, that our poetry is mostly put into our hymnody. One of them is... Uh, it's a little tricky to reference because uh, in it, part of the hymn is in Lutheran service book. Uh, I don't remember what number it is, but it's "Thanks to Thee, O Christ Victorious." Uh, it's by by uh, Kingo, a uh, a Scandinavian hymn writer. But in TLH, in the Lutheran hymnal, it's number two zero seven, and 
there's there's more stanzas in the old hymnal, and in particular, the first stanza that I think really stands out as a good example of this poetic imagery I've been talking about. So I, I, I said last week that when I was looking for hymns that really exemplify good poetry, I, I said I, I tried to look for ones that have sort of musicality to their language, that, that they, even apart from the melody, apart from the hymn tune, there is a poetry in the language itself, that the, that the words have a sort of musical feel to them, both on your uh, on your tongue and in your ear. And so it helps to maybe read, just read them as you would a poem and you get this, you get a little more sense of that uh, poetic feeling that I'm trying to, uh, that I'm looking for. Uh, but then also the, the poetic imagery, the interesting sort of typology that the hymns use. Is it just, so is it just telling the story in a straightforward way in verse? That's fine. I wouldn't say that that's the most amazing poetry because it's not doing everything that poetry can do. It's not using the the sort of metaphors and images that poetry can use. This example uh, from uh, from TLH number two zero seven, it, it's called "Like the Golden Sun Ascending," and like I said in LSB, we have the second verse to it, which begins "Thanks to Thee, O Christ Victorious." But this first stanza gives us the context of the later stanzas and it's a it's an easter context uh it's when you we take this first verse out you you i guess you can sing it any time of the year but i don't know you miss a great easter a great easter stanza so uh, let me read this to you this first stanza of tlh number 207 like the golden sun ascending breaking through the gloom of night on the earth his glory spending, so that darkness takes to flight. Thus my Jesus from the grave and death's dismal dreadful cave rose triumphant Easter morning at the early purple dawning. In one sense, you could say that that's just telling the story. Jesus rose from the dead on Easter Sunday morning. It's true. But that metaphor that's you know, half of the half of that stanza is where the power is. Uh, you know that Christ is likened to the golden sun breaking through the gloom of night, right? And that is a picture, an image of Christ coming from death's dismal, dreadful cave. So you have you have the metaphor, and when you think about the metaphor uh, theologically. Right. I mean, there's a whole different level of of that metaphor, kind of like we just discussed in the Psalms. Right. That there are different levels of of these things that you think about, um, you know, the the fact that uh, that that Jesus is the light and darkness cannot overcome him, you know. And so there's there's the, this uh, this glorious metaphor gives us and points us to the glorious theological truth that stands behind it and gives it even more weight than it has just on its own. Yeah, and that's the whole point of metaphors is to go deeper beyond just the 
appearance of a thing, but to see what is that thing like? Is there is there a deeper truth uh, here? Just be, you know, that's maybe below the surface. Uh, in a way. And one of the things that I love about poetry in general, and this in, is, in, in particular, is that it highlights how even the crea- God's creation serves as a metaphor for who God is and how he works, right? It, it's, it's not... Uh, it's, it's not paganism to see a metaphor between the rising of the sun and Christ's resurrection from the dead, or to see the new birth that comes in spring, the new life of things sprouting up from the cold, dead ground as a metaphor for the resurrection of Christ coming out of the tomb. Jesus himself makes that metaphor when he says that the seed must fall into the earth and die and then bear fruit, right? He's talking about himself there. Or the Psalms also, Psalm 19, uses the metaphor of the sun traveling through the heavens in the tabernacle of the heavens uh, as, a, as an image of, of God and his word. So uh, use, seeing metaphors for our God in creation, in nature, is in no way pagan because we know our God, he's, he is the creator. He's the one who did it. And so he built these metaphors into his creation. Yeah, it's one one of the things that uh, my my boys learned in life science uh, this year uh, was that um, you know the two books that God uh, wrote, uh, you know, he, he wrote the Bible, uh, but he also wrote creation, yeah. right? And yeah. so, so as as we think about, um, I, I love the 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 line you just used that. Uh, God built those metaphors into his creation, you know, and, and, and creation teaches us, uh, about, uh, about him. Um, now certainly we wouldn't go so far as to say, you know, that, you know, observing creation, uh, is, is somehow salvific, right. And, no. <laughs> you know, but, but, uh, it does point us to our creator and, yeah. and, and then by faith, uh, we, we believe, uh, in in our creator so it's just it's a it's a beautiful thing um, and and I I think that we're going to see this as we go on um, but there there just seems to be as I think about Easter hymnody uh, and and Easter poetry in particular it's uh, and I think we talked about this before but there there's there's like this the the earth cannot contain uh, its joy, right? I mean, as we think about Easter, there's just this this explosiveness, and and so these these poets they have to bring in creation because the you know not using metaphor and just uh, trying to to tell the story is is it's almost like there aren't enough words, right? We need to bring in all of creation to, to be able to express this joy. Um, you know, it's, 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 it, it's, it's overwhelming um, the, the amount of joy that we have uh, at our Lord's resurrection. And so all of creation has to be involved. Yeah, I, 
I, I think part of that is because the resurrection of Christ actually means a renewing of creation itself. That you know, this is the this is the one who sits on the throne and says, "Behold, I am making all things new." And so, and you know, the creation Paul says is groaning because of our disobedience, but it's waiting for us to be revealed as the sons of God, and so it's waiting for the final resurrection for it to be fully renewed and so it's it's only right that creation now joins us in in uh, in praising the resurrection of Jesus and and this isn't there's it's not an Easter hymn but it is one of my favorite uh, praise hymns and and you said you know there's not enough there's not enough words language can't do it well enough and there's the hymn uh, oh that i had a thousand voices and and you know say that basically i can't praise god enough it, it's it even you know has a stanza about how uh, all my powers within me my my reason and my senses and my imagination all of those things are still not enough i need to get the rest of the animals and everything else in creation to join with me in praising god and i i love how i love that uh that hymn it's 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 a lot of fun it's just a lot of fun to sing one one a different hymn that's also really fun to sing uh, is an Easter hymn. It's Paul Gerhardt's "Awake My Heart with Gladness," and uh, the first you know four stanzas of it. Uh, I, I in no way mean this as a criticism, but they mostly tell the story. They they are talking about how Christ is risen from the grave right and how the the foe in triumph shouted when christ lay in the tomb but lo he now is routed his boast is turned to gloom so it tells the story of satan's downfall and christ's resurrection and what that means for me but i want to draw our attention to stanzas five and six for their their uh the poetic nature of their language, that that musicality that I keep talking about, and uh, also the fun the fun imagery and metaphors that it that it uses. With with the uh, previous hymn, like the Golden Sun Ascending, we saw the metaphor being referred to Christ, that Christ is like the sun rising. Here in these stanzas, these metaphors are applied for us, uh, what we go through, and I think it. it illustrates in a very powerful way what Christ's resurrection does for us as uh, as Christians. So stanza five, the world against me rages, its fury I disdain. Though bitter war it wages, its work is all in vain. My heart from care is free, no trouble troubles me. Misfortune now is play, and night is bright as day. Now I will cling forever to Christ my Savior true. My Lord will leave me never, whate'er he passes through. He rends death's iron chain. He breaks through sin and pain. He shatters hell's grim thrall. I follow him through all. These images describing how we react to sin and death and suffering because of Christ's resurrection. I mean, they're just so much fun. They're so powerful. We are, uh, we are disdaining. We are mocking <laughs> the world and uh, and all the troubles that face us. You know, in fact, 
it almost um it almost gets you might think that it's um going a little too far when it says uh, misfortune now is play you know you kind of you kind of think like really i mean you know I, not maybe to take a kind of a dark turn but um you know someone dying in a car accident is not play right there's nothing playful about that and uh it's it's horrific and just to, to, to say misfortune now is play might seem a little cavalier like you know don't you realize how tragic uh, things can can be in life, and how how uh, death and pain can hurt us so much? Uh, but this is speaking from from the standpoint of Christ's resurrection. This is us getting to speak from the other side of death in the certainty of Christ's victory over death. And there we can, by faith, say misfortune is play. That's why we can go out to the cemetery at a funeral and put the casket in the ground and we can say with total confidence, with just perfect courage, uh, where's, your, where, where's your sting, O death? Where's your sting, grave? Uh, we're essentially saying, hey, bring it on. <laughs> and that might seem like a foolish thing to say because, uh, you, you know, it it doesn't look like victory there. It looks like defeat. The body's going into the ground. The dirt's going on top of it, right? But by faith, we, we know that we are actually victorious over all misfortune, over all suffering. And, and that that victory is illustrated in stanza six in an even more powerful way uh, where Christ is described uh, as rending death's iron chain, breaking through sin and pain. He shatters hell's grim thrall and we follow him through that all. This actually, I would say, is the Lutheran, <laughs> this is the the Lutheran version of the harrowing of hell. Uh, so, if you if you've ever seen some of some some paintings and iconography of Christ going down into hell and breaking down the doors and the bars and uh, you know waving his victorious flag while he pulls Adam and Eve and the various uh, saints down there, they pulls them out of hell. Uh, sometimes Lutherans get uncomfortable with that because you know we don't. We kind of think, well, weren't they already in heaven? They weren't in they weren't in hell, right? And, and the point is, this is poetry, and even the iconography is is poetry in a sense. It's a it's metaphor. It does not necessarily mean that he literally went into some dark, gloomy place and pulled Adam and Eve out of it. But that is what he did in a very true sense, right? He pulled us out of hell. He pulled us out of death. And so the pictures of Adam, him pulling Adam and Eve out of the grave is exactly what Easter is all about. And, uh, and here, Paul Gerhardt has just captured that point and, and applied it to us in a very, you know, just a very clear way um, so that we can see that uh, death's iron chain can't hold us, can't bind us, hell's doors can't close on us because it's all, it's been broken. It's been busted open by Christ's resurrection. 
sometimes cognitively, it's it's hard to grasp these things that we can only understand by faith, yeah. right? And, and so, so metaphor in this, especially metaphor like and night is bright as day in uh, stanza five, like we can get that cognitively, right? I mean, when we think of night, we think of dark. And when we think of day, we think of light. And so that we can grasp cognitively. And then because we've grasped that, then we can look at, you know, uh, rending death's iron chain and, and breaking through sin and pain. And even though cognitively we can't necessarily grasp the depth of that, because we've grasped this more simple metaphor, we're able to grasp that more complex thought and notion. Yeah, I think that that's I think that that's a good way to to describe it. And I would maybe uh, I think this is kind of basically what you're saying, but I'm gonna just use slightly different words. That from a rational point of view, we have a hard time really coming to grips with it, especially because our rationality is so grounded upon what we see and experience, right? In right. our flesh. And that, and all we see and experience is suffering and death, right? And yet uh, our imagination is often the thing that can, uh, uh, can, can somehow come to grips with this reality that we don't yet see. I'm not yeah. saying that uh, imagination and faith are the same thing, but, but the faculty of it, of imagination is, I think, an aid in the Christian's contemplation uh, of these truths that we can only grasp. We can only truly grasp them by faith, but to contemplate that them, it's often, I think, our imagination that aids us a little bit more than maybe our, you know, than just our cold uh, reason based on our our physical senses that helps yeah no absolutely and and i think that that's why we make sure as lutherans that we uh clarify that you know that that it's not by our own reason or strength that we can believe right that uh we we cannot uh believe uh it is only by faith that that we can believe we can't reason ourselves uh, to salvation because we can't get it. Yeah. Well, should we look at a couple uh, more more classic poetic examples? I guess. Absolutely, absolutely. Right. Well, um, we're going to go back to our our two our, our two favorites, the two best, frankly, uh, in uh, in English poetry, John Donne and George Herbert. So hopefully our listeners listened to uh, the Holy Week episode and they got to hear a couple great poems from these giants of, of English verse. Uh, today we're going to hear, I want to take us to uh, one of John Donne's poems, it's a longer poem called La Corona, and I, I suggested that to our listeners last week that they go and read that. And we're not going to read the whole thing, but uh, I want to focus on the 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 part of it that is on the resurrection of Jesus. This poem is on the whole life 
and work of Christ. And it's called La Corona, meaning the crown, because it is circular. It's made up of seven, seven sonnets, but the last line of one sonnet is the first line of the next sonnet, and then the last line of the final seventh sonnet is the first line of the very first sonnet, and so it keep it goes an entire an entire circle. It's sort of a chain of sonnets or a crown of sonnets. So one of the things that's sort of fun about that is that Dunn will repeat the line. It'll have the exact same words from the end of one sonnet and the beginning of the next one, but he'll sometimes play with it just a little bit to uh, and slightly change the way you read it. So the example here is from his, uh, the one on the resurrection, but I want to try to illustrate how these sonnets connect together in a fun way. The, the previous sonnet is on his crucifixion and that, uh, that one ends with this, uh, with this line, moist with one drop of thy blood, my dry soul. So it's saying to Christ that he would moisten us, moisten my dry soul with the drop, uh, with the drop of his holy blood, right? And then the next sonnet, the resurrection sonnet, starts with the same the exact same line, moist with one drop of thy blood, my dry soul. However, he just alters it slightly and to say, and, and it, some maybe the addition helps because it has commas. If it puts the commas in the right place, it kind of helps you see this. So in it starts out by saying, now, now that my, my dry soul has been moistened with one drop of thy blood, now my dry soul shall be freed by that drop. All right. So he he just alters the um, the grammar, I guess you know, of, of it, even though the words are exactly the same. And I think that's just a, a fun example of how great the English language can be. That you have the exact same words, but just with the way you you know, with the comma, you can alter uh, the the meaning just slightly. So uh, let me read this sonnet on the resurrection. Moist with one drop of thy blood, my dry soul shall, though she now be in extreme degree, too stony hard and yet too fleshly, be freed by that drop from being starved, hard or foul, and life by this death abled shall control death, whom thy death slew, nor shall to me fear of first or last death bring misery, if in thy life book my name thou enroll. Flesh in that long sleep is not putrefied, but made that there of which and for which twas, nor can by other means be glorified. May then sin's sleep and death's soon from me pass, that waked from both, I again risen may salute the last and everlasting day. The, the fact that you can communicate such a different experience uh, simply by uh, removing a period, 
right? And continue, you know, I mean, it's just it, it, this, and I'm, I'm looking at uh, the, the printout. Um, but when you, when you, when you simply change the grammar, uh, it, it profoundly changes the meaning, right? And, you know, the teacher in me is going, okay, grammar students, did you hear that? (laughs) Punctuation matters, grammar matters, you know? Um, And and I I won't get out my Oxford comma t-shirt, you know? Yeah, yeah. But, but, you know, we we see John Donne um, just express such a, a profound connection Right. I mean, he's using the exact same words. And so he's he's giving us a profound connection, obviously, between um, Christ's crucifixion and resurrection. Um, But in using that same line really communicates and gives us that that just visceral experience of the impact that those two events, the crucifixion and resurrection, have on me, right? I mean, you think about uh, the the Christ's blood uh, assuaging uh, the dryness of of my soul. Um, that that image is is so profound. The images that he uses for our our dry soul or our um... Well, yeah, it's it's our, our our soul. The images that he uses to expand on that are make it even more uh, more clear, more uh, more beautiful in a in a sort of paradoxical way. So I want to point out how he says that his his soul is um, too stony hard and yet too fleshly. Yes, that jumped out at me as well. Yeah. Yeah. So it's a, you know a hard heart as we hear in scripture all the time of the un, the impenitent sinner is has a heart a heart of stone and yet Dunn is like yeah but it's hard it's it's hard because it's too fleshly it's it's hard because it's too much of the sinful flesh right and that's why it's hard and impenitent towards God and I just having juxtaposing those two images is is a really fun way of uh contemplating just you know our our lost condition and then and then he he, the answer there the the salvation is that uh we shall be freed but i like what he says uh free from freed by that drop of christ's blood from being starved hard or foul right so that we are we are freed not to just it's not freedom to just do whatever i want to be my own free individual self but i'm freed from being having i'm freed from having a stony heart having a starved heart or having a foul fleshly heart yeah, I, I loved how uh, that starved, hard, or foul really is a, it, no pun intended, a fleshing out of <laughs> <laughs> the fleshliness yeah. um, of our uh, our hard heart. Um, and, and, and then um, just the, thinking about uh, the impact of 
one drop, right? He continues to um, bring that back to us that that drop, you know, that it it only took one drop. I mean, it it Jesus gave his entire life, yeah. right? But that one drop, you know, mm-hmm. that just in that, I think that done is is giving us the the power of of Jesus death and resurrection mm-hmm. right that 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 one drop mm-hmm. doesn't seem very significant but that's all it would take he goes on to consider the power that is in Jesus death and resurrection when he's when he says that uh life shall control death uh you know that uh and and that Christ's death slew death itself that's, uh, I think, of uh, well, obviously it's going back to scripture and to some some very ancient liturgy, you know, describing how um, Christ, destroy, he destroys death by death, right? That his mm-hmm. death undoes death. And, uh, and so then Dunn applies it to me saying that now I don't need to be afraid of either the first death, that is my physical death, or the last death, that is the death of condemnation in hell uh, because I'm enrolled, my name is enrolled in his life book, then the book, the Lamb's book of life there. So just the way, the multiple ways that he uses life and death and their, you know, battle against each other is, is, uh, is really, I think it's, it's really uh, fun and it's a good exercise for us to see how does you can use the same word in an entirely different way, you know that is this talking about my death or Christ's death, and you need to you know parse that out to really understand to under in order to understand the poem. I'd say it's a good exercise actually because I think this w- this comes up a lot in in Paul's writings mm. when he says things like uh, you know he talks about the law as in that which brings condemnation, although he also says that the law as in the law, the, the, the books of Moses testify to the gospel. And so he's using the word law in two different senses, or he says, you know, um, you know, uh, by what kind of law, a law of works? No, by the law of faith. And so wait, what is the law of right. faith? <laughs> right, he's using right. It in a different, he's using the same word, but with a different meaning. And so we just, I think poetry should teach us that we can't be too, uh, you know, we have we have to be a little flexible with our words to and and see from the context what does the author mean by these these words. That's a uh, sorry. That's a little bit of a tangent, but uh, no, that, that's great. That's great. And and I I I love how. Uh, this this awakens for us uh, those sorts of things because there is I think that's what imagery good imagery does is that it it gives us that opportunity to see the impact of this in multiple ways right it doesn't um, the the image that John Dunn gives us um, evokes other images that we see elsewhere. And I, and I think that's, that's a, a really uh, neat thing. One thing that uh, just jumped out at me uh, is 
the the parallel language that we see between uh Paul Gerhardt's hymn that we were just looking at, but not a stanza that we uh, that we read, but uh, stanza seven um, says, "He brings me to the portal that leads to bliss untold, whereon this rhyme immortal is found in script of gold. Who there my cross has shared finds here a crown prepared. Who there with me has died shall here be glorified. And you see some of that same language here. Uh, if in thy life book my name thou enroll. No. We see that uh, in uh, the line that ends, uh, if in thy life book my name thou enroll. And so we see this in in Christ's res resurrection, right, which is then our resurrection, um, and just that the the surety of uh, of of the reality that because of His death and resurrection, um, by by faith uh, and and by His merit, my name is inscribed in that book of life. We should look at the next line there. That's the final culmination of uh, of this sonnet that. Uh, in that long sleep of death, the flesh is not putrefied, but made that there of which and for which twas. Now that's a dense line. That's kind of a little hard to. I mean, I, uh, I am not going to try to diagram. The, <laughs> so, uh, but 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 basically, what he's saying is that. You know, in in death we do return to the dust, uh, what we were uh, of which we were made, right? But we will also become what we were intended to be. That in our resurrection from the dust, we shall become what uh, you know what Adam was originally intended to be—a living being who has the the God's breath of life in him. And so then, in the last couple lines, he uses the metaphor of sleep for death. He, he already did that in the long sleep. But then he says, may then sins sleep, which is what we're experiencing in this life now. Uh, that's why Paul tells us to wake up right now. Mm -hmm. You wake up now from your sleep of sin so that on the last day you can wake up from the sleep of death, right? And so Dunn says, and, and deaths also, death sleep soon from me pass. Uh, that waked from both i again risen may salute the last and everlasting day so we have sleeping and waking imagery just like we saw in uh, the psalm psalm 139 well we should give george herbert a little bit of time here uh before we spend all of our our uh, energy on John Donne. But uh, isn't this the great thing about poetry? I mean, you can, it, this was what, you know, 15, 20 lines. And yeah. I mean, we could, we could just immerse ourselves in just those lines for uh, a long time. Uh, hopefully our listeners, um, have their, their book out, you know, we're, we're going to provide, um, uh, links to these poems and uh, as as much as we can, and hopefully they're looking at them and reading them and 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 hearing them, um, so that they too can can ponder 
all of these things that that we're pondering and uh, hopefully more right yeah. uh, and uh, as as I've I've offered the last uh, few episodes um, interact with us on uh, the Wittenberg hours uh, Facebook page um, we would love to uh, interact with with our with our listeners uh, about these but yeah. George right. Herbert. Well, was, I, yes, I, I just have to agree with what you said about they're, they're interacting with us because I, I just thought I should share something that we, uh, well, that you said before we started recording that you see literature, the point of literature is the conversation about yes. it. And that's, I, I, I totally agree. Uh, I think, you know, we should be reading, uh, there's the phrase reading in community, and that's, that's the best way to experience literature is not just each individually on our own, but you know, when you read a book or a poem, you're already having a conversation with somebody else. You're having a conversation right. with the poet or the author, and then to, uh, and then most cases you can't actually talk back to them because they're not there, but you can talk to the other people uh, around you and read it together. So I, I agree. Please, uh, we'd be happy to have people. Uh, share what they notice about these poems as well. So uh, George Herbert, he has a, a great poem. Uh, just it's simply entitled Easter, and uh, just a short introduction for it. Uh, he, he does seem to be taking another Psalm verse as his jumping-off point, which I I. Uh, have read it's not from our tradition you know George Herbert was a minister in the Church of England and uh, it seems that the, the the psalm verse that he's using is Psalm 57 verse 8 that's that's definitely the case and uh, and apparently that is a one of the propers for Easter in the book of C common prayer so he's also drawing on his liturgical tradition and the, the, the parts of the liturgy that he would know as a minister in that church. Psalm 57 verse 8 says, Awake my glory, awake O harp and lyre, I will awake the dawn. And so there right away we know this is going to be about resurrection because it's about waking up, right? And uh, we're going to see him uh, talk about uh, both uh, He's going to talk to his own heart to awake, to wake up, and he's going to also talk to uh, his lute, uh, you know, an instrument like the psalm mentions as well. So here it is, Easter by George Herbert. Rise, heart, thy Lord is risen. Sing his praise without delays. Who takes thee by the hand, that thou likewise with him mayest rise? that as his death calcined thee to dust, his life may make thee gold and much more just. Awake, my lute, and struggle for thy part with all thy art. The cross taught all wood to resound his name who bore the same. His stretched sinews taught all strings what key is best to celebrate this most high day. Consort both heart and lute, and twist a song pleasant and long, or since all music is but three parts vied and multiplied, O oh, let thy blessed spirit bear a part, and make up our defects with his sweet art. I got me flowers to straw thy way, I got me boughs off many a tree, but thou wast up by break of day, and broughtest thy sweets along with thee. 
The sun arising in the east, though he give light and the east perfume, if they should offer to contest with thy arising, they presume. Can there be any day but this, though many suns to shine endeavor? We count three hundred, but we miss. There is but one, and that one ever. Well, hopefully you noticed, uh, either as you're looking at the poem or hearing me read it, that uh, halfway through it changes, you know, the meter changes completely. And so we'll talk about that. Uh, and there's a lot of different imagery we could uh, go into here. But again, once again, I'll see if, uh, Jocelyn, do you have any first reactions? Well, I think that the thing that uh, struck me the most as as we were uh, as as you were reading, as I was listening, um, was that that change, right, uh, in in meter and and how all of a sudden it, it's it's almost it almost threw me uh, just a little bit, um, yeah. and 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 I think. Uh, I would imagine that that was intentional um, in in terms of, and, and we'll get into that. Um, but also, uh, kind of going back to uh, what we had talked about previously, he starts with uh, "Rise, heart, uh, sing his praise," but then it's it's almost as though in the second stanza, um, his his heart can't quite uh sing without help his heart needs help to be able to sing and so okay uh lute can you help me out uh <laughs> so it's almost it's almost like there's a um the the reality of wow this is a really big thing and i can't really uh, I, I can't really bring myself as we talked before i can't really bring myself to express what I want to express. So, so maybe the lute can help me. Um, and, and maybe if they, they come along, well, no, uh, the lute and my heart, uh, they're not enough. Okay. Uh, <laughs> Holy spirit, help us out. Cause we got nothing yet. You, know, <laughs> you know, we're really trying here. Uh, but, but we really, we really need some help. Uh, so that was in, in terms of those first three stanzas. Uh, that's that's what I heard in terms of of what George Herbert was was trying to express. Yeah, I, well, I think once again it fits so well with the phrase we've been using. Uh, it keeps coming back up, you know, that I cannot by my own reason or strength believe in Christ or come to him, but the Holy Spirit has called right. me by the gospel. And so here Herbert is saying that in his poetry, he says, uh, I can't do it with just my own my own heart. I need my lute to uh, accompany me. And, uh, and, and yet even that's not enough, that I, by my emotions and by my skill, as a poet, uh, I I still can't rightly praise my God. I need the Holy Spirit's inspiration to, in order to rightly uh, rightly respond to what my God has done. And I just wanted to, uh, you know, point out something because uh, it's always fun when when you see you see a great poet like this do something, and then you see oh. Uh, Lutherans also know how to do that. Uh, we don't realize how what great stuff we have sometimes. Uh, but you know, you said that the 
the change in meter kind of you know is really jarring at first and and it just popped into my head uh there's a great hymn, uh, Lutheran hymn. One thing, one thing's needful. One thing's needful, Lord. This yes. treasure, teach me highly to regard. All else, though it first give pleasure, is a yoke that presses hard. Beneath it, the heart is still fretting and striving. No true, lasting happiness ever deriving. This one thing is needful. All others are vain. I count all but loss that I Christ may obtain. It just halfway through the hymn changes the meter and you just it, it's so much fun to sing though uh, well well there's a different reason why herbert changes the meter here in, in this one but it certainly is um i don't know it's nice to see how not only can images complement each other but meters can complement each other and you can one can flow into the next and that can work quite well the uh Imagery in the first three stanzas, I think, is quite interesting. The very first couple lines, he uses the imagery of of lovers, and don't hear that in a sinful sense. We could just say husband and wife, but um, you know, when it says that the Lord uh, who takes thee by the hand, right, that thou likewise with him mayest rise. It's on the one hand, simply describing how, well, actually, let me start with the image first. It's, it's the image of, uh, of one lover getting up from the bed, well, you know, the husband getting up from the waking up in the bed and taking the hand of his wife and, and taking her, uh, lift, lifting her out of bed. But that is, used here as a metaphor for the image of Christ who has risen from the grave, the bed of his, of his grave, taking us by the hand and pulling us up out of the grave, right? Out of our sleep in death. So that's, uh, that's the first couple lines there, but then he changes the image imagery. He goes to, uh, he goes to alchemy actually. And, uh, this sort of, uh, uh, a type of a type of chemistry, but there's there's no doubt that he's drawing on um, the imagery of of alchemy, and many Christian poets will do that. Uh, that doesn't mean that they're endorsing any kind of witchcraft, or they're even um, you know so foolish, such foolish scientists that they even think like that they can do it. But it's it's using it's using uh, an image to describe something, even if that image is not, you know, quite factually true. Uh, brief aside, my one of my favorite images of this type is in the, uh, the Thomas Aquinas uh, Lord's Supper hymn that we have in our hymnal, which says to Christ, thou like the pelican to feed her brood did, didst pierce thyself to give us living food. This was an, uh, this was a, uh, we could say a mistaken understanding of uh, biologists in the medieval era that pelicans would pluck at, pierce their breast to provide some nourishment to their young when there was no food to be had. Um, first of all, I don't even, I don't know, maybe, maybe it happened one time, I don't know. Um, but okay, so that's not, that doesn't actually, maybe pelicans don't actually do that. That's not the point. The point is it's 
it's an image, it's a metaphor, and we can use fanciful images that our imagination conjures for us to meditate on the work of Christ. And so uh, here that works as well with this sort of alchemy imagery. Uh, calcined is the word that mean, it means, um, the f it, it's describing the process where fierce heat burns away the impurity of the base metal that is tr that is being transformed into gold it's a purification process and he says that christ's death calcined thee to dust his death purifies thee back to back to dust which is you know expressing the truth that we die with christ so that we might also rise with him and so he says his life may make thee gold and much more just that you know christ's death and resurrection is the true alchemical process that takes us base metals and transforms them into into gold the uh the second stanza he switches he leaves so he's left the uh the lover imagery he's left the alchemy Im imagery and now he goes to musical metaphors talking about the lute and i think the uh the what he the, the how he describes the way uh lutes are made is just is so cool he says the cross taught all wood to resound his name who bore the same so he's saying basically all wood because jesus died on a cross of wood all wood is blessed to serve god it reminds me of um I mean, kind of reminds me of Luther's baptism prayer about how by Christ's baptism in the Jordan River, all water was sanctified to be made a lavish washing away of sin, right? That you don't need uh, holy water, you don't need holy wood, uh, but the wood of a lute can also praise God. Uh, and then it says, his stretched sinews taught all strings what key is best to celebrate this most high day. Now, you have to realize that in Herbert's day and, and sometimes still in our day, the strings of these instruments was literally uh, lines of animal gut, right? It's their fleshly things. And here he draws a connection between those bits of flesh stretched across the wood of the lute to the sinews of Christ's flesh stretched over the wood of the cross and says, Christ's flesh and uh, wood of the that teaches the wood and the flesh of our lutes how to praise him for his uh, for his saving work. That stanza and the 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 idea of the the cross and his sinews um, that those you know, for lack of a better term, uh, sanctify all wood and. Uh, teach all strings uh, what key to play, right? It, it, it brings me uh, now, you know, post-reading to the end of the poem where he, the, the very last line that says, there is but one and that one ever, right? And we sometimes hear about um, the, that the only day 
uh, that ever happened. Uh, the only day that actually ever happened was Good Friday, right? And, you know, just this this idea of reality and what is real and that in Christ only is found reality. And all things find their realness uh, in Christ and apart from Christ, uh, there, there, there is not real. Yeah, we did... Um, you're going to have to remind me, maybe, uh, there's the passage from Colossians that was the theme verse for Lutheran Schools Week, uh, you know, back, and it was, uh, how does that, you know, how all things. that go? You know, right. Yeah. Yeah. And so all, all things are, uh, I don't know, I, I, I'm, I've lost now the actual the actual phrase of the passage, but it's express, you're expressing what that passage in Colossians 2 says. Yeah, absolutely. That 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 in Christ, uh, all things are are held together, and yeah. in in Him uh, is is the fullness of of all things. You know, yeah. apart from Christ, uh, there is nothing. Right? right. I mean, there there is there is only uh, emptiness and 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 false. Right. And um, and so everything that is. Uh, good, true, or beautiful, as we like to say, find their end in Christ. They their goal, their telos is in Christ. And so here, uh, Herbert is saying, you know, essentially, uh, uh, lutes were created to praise Christ for His resurrection. Everything is 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 made is has come into being in some way to to serve and glorify. Christ. Uh, that, of course, sounds ridiculous unless you uh, have the Holy Spirit and have eyes to see and ears to hear those those glorious truths, right? Unless you have faith. And that's why the third stanza is so important. There's maybe a little less imagery there, but it's just as important that uh, Herbert says, I need I need the Blessed Spirit. I need the Holy Spirit to inspire my song. And uh, he does use a, a image. Uh, it's a, another musical metaphor talking about uh, harmony. He says, uh, Or since all music is but three parts vied and multiplied, O oh, let thy Blessed Spirit bear, bear a part and make up our defects with his sweet art. So, uh, you know, that's the basis of the of harmony, right? Is the three, the I, I'm not a musician, but the the chord of three notes is sort of your foundational. Uh, it's where you start to build a harmony, right? And so, uh, in the the harmony of this poem, Herbert has his heart. He has the lute or the skill uh, that he brings as a poet, as a craftsman, and then the Holy Spirit as well, and then. This is at the end of that third stanza is where the meter changes because now that uh, Herbert's heart and lute have uh, been tuned, have been readied, and the spirit has come, now the song of praise can begin. And so actually the reason the meter changes is because this is, a diff this is the actual song. It's a song within a song. All right? It's a poem within a poem uh, sort of thing. And, uh, and he, this particular this particular little 
song within the the larger poem is actually based on a uh, particular type of courtly poetry from the the sort of romantic courtly tradition uh, it's called an aubade uh, a u b a d e i could be pronouncing that wrong uh, but it's it's called an aubade which is a a lover's poem at dawn and so he does sort of return to the first image of the lovers waking up in the morning and yet he turns it around in some ways because uh, it's my understanding that this uh, this type of poem could often be, you know, that, uh, well, that the lover, that the son is waking the lovers up in their bed and they, they don't want to wake up. They want to stay and they don't want the son to bother them. And so you have, you have different versions, you have versions of, of that type of a poem. You also have, I think, versions of where, um, one of them, one of them leaves the other in bed and, and you know, it's, it's, a, it's a you know one night stand sort of thing and the other the, their 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 lover is is gone uh you know not all poetry is uh not all poetic descriptions of love are are good and wholesome descriptions of of love right and so we do we should be uh you know watchful of that of course but uh herbert sort of turns turns this around and makes this uh, makes this work for the uh, the metaphor of Christ being our lover who wakes us up from the sleep of death and is there with us. Right? It, it reminds me of the Psalm verse we st- I started with: uh, "I I awake and I am still with you." That Christ has not he's not uh, slipped away in the night. He hasn't left us, but he is still there. Uh, you know, Herbert begins his his little song by saying. You know, uh, I got up, I got me flowers to straw thy way, I got me boughs off many a tree, but thou, Christ, wast up by break of day and brought to, broughtest thy sweets along with thee. So it's almost like the, uh, it, it's a little bit like the women going to the tomb, you know, that they, they got up at the before the sun rose to go and bring their, their gifts of uh incense to christ and he was already up and had already made the bed and you know he was he had had things to do he was up before they got there uh so it's sort of a playful uh playful thing that one lover thinks they're going to bring a gift to their other and then he finds out oh they they beat me to it they've already they've christ has already risen and bringing his his gifts to me and then he he goes uh he continues with the image of the sun and the dawn, because that is the type of poem this is. It's the lover's poem at dawn. Uh, and so he says, uh, you know, that the sun is rising, uh, the east brings perfume, you know, the orient being the places, the, the origin of, of myrrh and spices. Um, but if they should offer to contest with thy arising, they presume. is saying, that kind of plays on that other version of the albaid where the lovers are in bed and they're like, go away, son. We don't want you here. You're, you're ruining our, you know, we want to just sleep in and everything. Um, he's saying in the same way, if the son thinks he can uh, compete with Christ's rising, well, then he's, he, he's out of line, right? That it's Christ's rising, uh, 
on Sunday morning that is far greater than any uh, natural sunrise. And then as you brought up uh, uh, before, that he, uh, he says, you know, there's there's all kind there's there's many different days that we'll see many different sunrises and uh, you know according to the calendar uh, we count 300 i mean sort of as a simplification of our 365 but he says we're wrong in all that there's not many different days many different sunrises there really is only one day there is one eternal easter day that is our life in christ the most real of all reality. You give for us, uh, you have, you have a, a couple of other suggestions uh, for poems for us to ponder uh, for Easter, um, one of which uh, we may not have ever associated uh, with Easter. John Donne's Death Be Not, Death Be Not Proud is one that frequently is studied, you know, especially at the the collegiate level, maybe the high school level. Uh, But I would imagine that most of our listeners, had they studied that, uh, especially in a secular setting, um, may not have considered that one to aid in their Easter celebration. Yeah, I, I thought of it that we should bring it in, even though it's not explicitly about Easter. Uh, it is it is an Easter message. It's all about uh, the, the mockery of Christ, which is the beginning of the poem, death be not proud. Don't be proud of your, don't be so proud, death, like you're the great victor just because our bodies go to sleep for a little while, uh, you know, in, in your graves. It's the same as Paul saying, you know, where, O oh, death, is thy victory? Where is thy sting, right? Uh, and the final couplet of the sonnet just brings that all home uh, and is a uh, confession of our resurrection from the dead. It uses the imagery of sleep and awaking, just like we've seen in these other poems about the resurrection. So just to read that last final couplet, uh, I think shows that this this poem does belong in uh, in our Easter contemplation. One short sleep past, we wake eternally, and death shall be no more. Death, thou shalt die. That's that's death's final uh, end, right? Death dies because Christ died and rose again. The uh, so that was that's one of my that's one of my all time favorite. Uh, favorite poems, really. If someone was going to ask me what's your what's your favorite poem, I might have to pick that one. Probably it was one of the it maybe because it's one of the first besides children's poetry. That was probably the first poem that awakened my love for for poetry. So there's a little personal uh, anecdote there. But uh, uh, I wanted to give a suggestion also for a modern poet because I, I love these. I certainly love the the great the great poets like John Donne and George Herbert, but um, there are some really fantastic modern poets. One of them is uh, his name is Scott Cairns. He is a uh, he he's a Eastern Orthodox Christian, but uh, and and his poetry is I haven't read it very closely, so 
I could be wrong. Maybe there's some meter, but I think most of his poetry is uh, what's called free verse. So it's not uh, not a meter and, and definitely no no rhyming. Um, but I still think it's 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 very good. The his his uh, just you can tell his he just has such a great love for language. There's a, a new book that he put out called End, Endless Life, Poems of the Mystics. And what's interesting here is that he actually doesn't come up with original poems. He reads he he reads through um, various saints uh, of the church and writes poem poetic paraphrases of their of their writings. And so he includes like. Irenaeus and Athanasius and Augustine and Basil and and some other um, you know Eastern saints that we might not know or uh, uh, some some medi- medieval um, you know medieval writers like Julian of Nor- Norwich um, and uh, Saint John of the Cross, but uh, one of one of the one one of the uh, saints the Church Fathers that he. Uh, he treats here is St. Melito of Sardis, which is a great place to go uh, read his his sermons, his homilies on Pascha, uh, on, on Easter. And he just has all the Old Testament imagery you could possibly want, you know, connecting Christ's, uh, connecting the Old Testament and the Passover with Christ's death and resurrection. The poems that... Um, that Scott Cairns writes for uh, Saint Melito of Sardis uh, are also are quite powerful. Maybe I could uh, could read one of them for you, just because you know it. The only, probably the only way to get his poetry is to buy the book. Um, but this one, this is um, based, I, as I said, on on Saint Melito of Sardis and his writings on uh, on Christ's Pasch, uh, Paschal victory. I'll read this first one because it it really connects with the Old Testament typology. It, it shows that quite well. It's called Pascha, our passing over into life. Finally, the Hebrew scriptures have been opened and the mystery declared, how the sheep was sacrificed and how a people were redeemed and Pharaoh wincing lashed by unsuspected mystery. Therefore, all beloved, apprehend the secrets of the Pascha. See that they contain both new and old, eternal and provisional, what passes and what will never pass away, mortal and immortal both. For the law is old, but the world, have you noticed, is suddenly new. The figure is provisional, while grace is everlasting. The trembling sheep is mortal, but the Lord, unbroken as the lamb, raised up by God's sure hand, is deathless. So one little example of a, of a modern free verse poem, but still does a lot of the things we've been talking about today. Absolutely. That was fantastic. And I will certainly uh, provide the link to that book in the episode notes, uh, should our listeners want to pick that one up. Uh, And then you had one other suggestion uh, for our listeners in terms of uh, their their Easter celebration and and poetry that can can aid in that. Uh, You had uh, John Updike and his seven stanzas at Easter. 
Yeah, that one, I know you can, I found it online, so you can just Google it and uh, read it there. I, um, I, I'll have to give a qualification that I've not read anything else by John Updike. And it's from what I have heard, I won't, I'm not recommending you go read anything else by John Updike. So um, how he ended up writing this one poem, I, I don't know. Um, but it sounds, yeah, I, my understanding is his, his, his other novels and things aren't too wholesome. So, so don't go, and maybe you, you know more than, than I do uh, about that, Jocelyn, but the, uh, the seven stanzas at Easter is, is pretty neat from a modern, another modern poet. Uh, and he really goes after the idea that the resurrection of Jesus must be fact. It must mm. be a real physical resurrection or it won't it, it it's it serves no purpose it's not a real so none of this none of this um he lives within my heart um you know nonsense uh you know how do i know that jesus lives he live you know he lives in my heart or anything like that no the resurrection must be a real physical resurrection from the dead and uh he brings in um his his language is just so uh, physical with um, talking about uh, the the anatomy of Christ's you know hands where the nails went in and and even the the chemistry of amino acids and how what they how they meant I remember that one um, that one term comes up in uh, comes up in it and so he's just really emphasizing the incarnation and so then also the physical resurrection of Christ. And maybe in, in a way, you know, um, giving a, um, the, uh, the side of doubting Thomas that where, where, um, his, his challenge is actually true. So, you know, he was wrong to test the Lord, to, to challenge God in that way by saying, unless I, you know, touch my put my hand in his side i will not believe um and yet at the same time that requirement of it i need i'm only going to believe in a real physically resurrected jesus or else it's no use because my body's going to stay in the grave too if right paul says if christ is not raised then our faith is futile we're still dead in our sins right our faith is in vain so uh i don't it's a it's a um, I think uh, uh, a valuable poem, um, maybe despite the the author. The reality of these things, the reality of Christ's death and resurrection, for for a pagan or you know whether or not John John Updike is a pagan, uh, but for you know. Christ's death and resurrection and the impact of those things, uh, of those two events, has been pondered through the ages. You know, it's kind of like going back to George Herbert's uh, poem, The Agony, right? You know, that, that, that philosophers have pondered these things for ages. And, and because we are made in the image of God, right? That has an impact on our pondering, and uh, and and faith certainly 
uh, sanctifies our pondering and allows us to see more clearly, even though we see yet dimly uh, this side of heaven. But poetry, even poetry by the likes of John Updike, and and I affirm uh, your <laughs> your suggestion that that our listeners not go out and <laughs> you know pick up every John Updike they can uh, they can get their hands on, but. But the fact that the likes of John Updike can can produce a, a poem that aids in our Easter celebration to this extent allows us to realize the truth and reality of Good Friday and Easter Sunday. Yeah, I, amen. The uh... Literature and poetry, I think, is un- is a unique place where uh, truth and goodness and beauty can be pondered, even when it comes from unlikely places and uh, unlikely minds. Because, as we said before, uh, ultimately, it's all uh, its end, its goal is all in Christ and His glory. Pastor Dodgers. Uh, a blessed Easter season. Uh, we are we are into that season now, and and look forward to uh, this this time of of just uh, joyous celebration. And thank you for bringing these poems to our attention so that they can aid our Easter celebration. I definitely look forward to our our next conversation. And uh, thank you uh, for your time today. Thank you very much, and Happy Easter. Thank you for joining us today for the Wittenberg Hour. Be sure to subscribe to the Wittenberg Hour so as to not miss an episode. If you would like to learn more about Wittenberg Academy, please visit our website at wittenbergacademy.org. You can like and follow Wittenberg Academy on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Join us again next time on the Wittenberg Hour.